Now you know, at first I wasn't gonna say anything. <laughs> but since he mentioned the praise team, I actually figured it out today. I'm gonna go buy a guitar. The guitar will get you on the stage. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. You know, you know, another thing, this is, this is something that happened this morning. I thought I would share it with you. I, I woke up with this overwhelming desire to tell the Lord how much I loved him. And, and I thought that before I really prayed, maybe we could collectively tell the Lord how much we love him. And then I'll pray. How about that? All right, Father, we just love you. We love you. We love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We love you. We are so grateful to know you and to be a part of your family. We appreciate all that you are and all that you do in and through our lives. Bless today. Let our hearts be pliable. Let your word bring increase. Let all that we say and all that we do glorify you. In Jesus' name, bless the pastor. Amen. Amen. We are continuing in this uh, series called Seasons. We're taking a few minutes, a few weeks, and pulling back before the big hustle bustle of Christmas time and all of what that brings in terms of our families uh, and interactions with friends and families. And, and we're taking just a few weeks to pull back and say, let's just take stock of the season that God has us in right now. Let's just take a few minutes and pull back and get a little bit introspective and get, turn our hearts toward God and say, God, where do you have me right now? What do you want me to be doing right now? The scripture says that to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. We all go through seasons. In Genesis chapter 8, it says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. In other words, these are the natural seasons, but in our lives we also go through spiritual seasons, and sometimes the challenge that we have is not really recognizing that we're in a season. We think it's just our life because we don't have the bird's eye view to say, oh, wait a minute, this is a season that God has got me in. And a lot of times, especially as we move towards the holidays, this, the anxiety, the stress, the, the anger, perhaps the depression sometimes that we feel is that we are getting out of sync with, we're getting out of rhythm with our season. And, you know, I, I described last week the saxophone player who was playing, and he was playing all the right notes, but he was playing them two measures behind the rest of the band. So he's, he's playing everything right, he's doing everything right, but he's doing it out of season. So he can't figure out, why am I doing everything right, but it doesn't sound good, right? And I think in our lives, sometimes we experience that, and we do that in a couple ways. One is, we hold on to a past season when God is moving us into a different season. Has anybody ever done that? You're sort of like grabbing onto something. It's like the little kid at the mall who's on the escalator, and he's got one foot on the ground, and he's got the other foot on the step, and that step is going up like that. And before you know it, something's going to give, right? And 
Maybe his pants are going to split. We don't know. But something is going to happen because he's, he's holding on with one leg to one season. And he's, his other leg is moving up to the other season. The other way that we, that we get discordant with our season and out of rhythm and out of sync is that we sometimes want to leapfrog to the next season. Even though we haven't fully worked out what God has us to learn and know and grow in this season. Right? Especially when this season is uncomfortable. You know, I, I was with a group of church planters not too long ago. Church planters are the absolute worst at wanting to get out of whatever season they're in and wanting to get to the next season. So they get together and they're like, so, um, you know, what are you guys doing now? And how many people are coming in? What's going on with you guys? And, then, and, you know, and they're thinking like, I would just want to get out of this season to get to the next season. The problem is they never then really appreciate the season that God has them in. Because we all have things to learn in the season that we're in. We all have areas in which to grow in the season that we're in, right? And so if we're always trying to leapfrog to the next season, we're not actually grasping what God has for us in this season. And the other irony of it is, is that when we get too impatient to jump to the next season, we end up staying in this season longer, right? Have you ever noticed that? You're like, man, I just want to get past this. I want to get on. I want to get moving on. And so we're not doing what we need to do to come through the issues and work through the issues that we've got in this season. And so we get to stay here until we learn them, right? Have you ever noticed that? You end up on this loop. You're like, man, why am I doing the same thing I was doing five years ago? Why am I doing, you know, why is this happening? Well, hold still and let God work it out in this season, all right? All right. So we're going through these different seasons. Um, last week we covered a season of rest. God calls every single one of us to a season of rest. And then today we're going to talk about a season of reconciliation. You can go ahead and put that slide up. Today we're going to talk about a season of reconciliation. That's a season of putting things back together, bringing things that are, that are out of sorts back together. Then we're going to talk about next week a season of recovery and then a season of revival. And that's a season where God breathes new life into you. But that season cannot happen without the other three. Amen. You can't have the revival unless you've had some rest and some reconciliation and some recovery. Um, So in reconciliation, let me just start with this. How many of you guys in the last year have, have fallen out with someone, gotten into some sort of disagreement, had gone sideways with somebody in the last year? Raise your hand. Come on. Don't be scared. Come on. In the last year. Yeah. Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up, right? How many of you keep your hands up if it was the other person's fault, right? <laughs> Husbands, put your hands down. Husbands. Um, that's the crazy thing about conflict, right? We can always see what's going on with the other person. We can always point out with alarming clarity whatever it is that they're doing wrong but we sometimes have a, tra- a little problem figuring out what our contribution to the disagreement is. Reconcile just means to bring things back together, to make things good, to take a relationship that's broken and restore it and bring it back together. At my house, it works kind of like this. This is the simple version of reconciliation. Jameson, my six-year-old, will do something to Lincoln, the four-year-old. He'll either trip him, he'll steal his Halloween candy, he'll, he'll take his balloon, he'll write on his art, he'll do something, right? Then I hear Lincoln. Lincoln just, Lincoln's just emotion. The kid is just like right there. And he just bawls. And the tears start flowing down, like real tears, bawling, so sad. And then either Rebecca or I will go into the room 
and we'll say, what's going on, guys? And we'll get it figured out. Well, Jameson will usually admit, he's pretty honest still, uh, he'll usually say, well, I, I, you know, I tripped him and I took his candy. Um, and then, like, okay, um, A for honesty. But, uh, and then what, what, what I always do is, is I'll say, look, I think you need to uh, apologize to Lincoln and, and give him a hug and tell him you're sorry. And so Jameson reaches over to Lincoln. He says, I'm sorry. He gives him a hug. And then Lincoln is like the most forgiving human being on the planet. Lincoln will wrap his arms around Jameson and like at the top of his voice, he'll go, that's okay. And he hugs him. And he, you know, and he'll like kiss him on the cheek. And sometimes they tackle and then it's a wrestling match. And then I'm like, I'm stepping out before the next thing happens. But he's just got this, this genuine sense of forgiveness and this desire to reconcile. Apology issued, apology accepted, relationship restored, reconciliation, moving on. It's a beautiful, beautiful snapshot of what it means to be reconciled. Now, I want to take a pause before we go deep into reconciliation and say that there are certain instances in our lives that some of you have experienced where reconciliation or restoration of the relationship is neither possible and, and in some instances not even desirable. And, and what do I mean by that? There are, God always calls us to forgive. Always calls us to forgive, no matter what, okay? There are instances where people have struggled with, they, they've been harmed, they've been taken advantage of, maybe abused as a child, they've been repeatedly hurt in very serious ways, and it's neither possible nor beneficial for them to try to reconcile and restore the relationship with the offender, okay? It is important, God commands us to forgive, but we don't always have to reconcile. And I just want to be clear as I, as I go through this because I don't want, if you're in you know, the congregation today and you're hearing me talk about this and you're saying, I can never forgive that person because that means I need to be back in relationship with that person, that's not, that's not true. That's not what I'm saying, okay? So there are instances where reconciliation is not possible. But today I want to talk about sort of the normal course of life when we offend one another, when we harm one another, uh, but not in these extreme ways, and God is calling us to reconcile. In fact, he's calling us to be what he calls ambassadors of reconciliation, all right? Ambassadors of reconciliation. I'm going to give you, uh, we'll start with 2 Corinthians 5, because this is an amazing passage where Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and listen to what he says. He sets it up in verse uh, 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He said the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. What he's saying there is, is absolutely radical, okay? He's saying that when we, when we submit to Christ, when we follow the unction of Christ by grace through faith, when we turn our hearts over to the Lord and believe on him, he doesn't upgrade us. He doesn't dust us off. He doesn't give us you point two. He, 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 he transforms us into something different. It's a new birth. It's a regeneration. It's a recreation. You are something new. You are different. And that reconciliation that happens is, is what God does for us. That's not something that we do. That's something that God does for us. Um, 
let me read the next part of it. It says that all of this is from God, who through Christ, you can go ahead and put that slide up, Don. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. Do you have that verse? Okay. <laughs> all right. There it is. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a microphone, Don. We'll just talk back and forth. <clears throat> All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And this is the part. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only does God, through Christ, completely reconcile the relationship between us and God. We are at a, you know, theologically, we are at a distance from God. We are broken from God. We are not, we're discordant. We're out of line with. We're not, you know, we're, we're not synced up with. We're not in rhythm with God. But the scripture says that God, through Christ, reconciles us to himself. He clears away the trespasses, and he reconciles us to himself. Grace is not just a concept to be grasped. It is a spiritual reality that pierces through your, your soul. It shatters your sense of self. It ransacks your pretense of religion. It transforms you into something new. That's God's grace. It's totally different than trying to work your way in. Okay? So recon- he reconciles us to himself so that we can be ministers of reconciliation. That means he's changed us so that we can be agents of change. He's transformed us so that we can transform our world. He's given us mercy so that we can be emissaries of mercy. And then he explains what that means. He says that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And here's the line. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. This is an absolutely staggering, brilliant, amazing concept. This means that God has transformed us. He's reconciled his relationship with us through Christ. And then he's made us the messengers of that same reconciliation. So the vertical relationship is restored. And then we are to go out and restore the horizontal relationships among our community, among our families, among our friends, among our enemies, among people that we like, among people that we don't like, among people that are like us, among people that are different from us, among people that agree with us, among people that don't agree with us, among all the world, every tribe, nation, tongue, and creed, we are to be messengers, ambassadors, emissaries of reconciliation. That's powerful. That's powerful. Now, that's hard, okay? It's hard because... We tend towards conflict, not reconciliation. Conflict is so much easier than reconciliation. I will never have to give a sermon about how to have conflict with other people because we just know how to do it from the very beginning. As little children, we know how to get in conflict with somebody, right? But reconciliation is hard. I I was on an email uh, with a group of friends. There were 10 of us on this email, and we were having a discussion about something that we all care deeply about. There's something wrong with that sentence. You should never really be on an email with 10 other people discussing issues that you really care deeply about. You should really be around a dinner table having that discussion because email can get a little wonky. Has anybody ever noticed that? So I'm on this email with 10 people and friends, all good friends, and we're circulating this email. We're having this discussion, 
And at some point in the discussion, I felt like my position was not taken seriously enough. A couple people just fired off these sort of cavalier emails that were kind of dismissive and just kind of like, eh, whatever, meh, you know, that kind of email, right? And one morning I woke up and, you know, this email chain is going on and on. I woke up one morning and one of those emails had, had come through. And you know how you do? I mean, I don't know if you ever do this. Some of you do because you're like, you're like bowing your heads right now like, oh my gosh, what did he do? Um, I fired off the most eviscerating, the most brilliant, the most diamond-edged, the most hardcore, the most logical, the most brilliant evisceration of all of their arguments. I destroyed all of their arguments. My opponents were crushed at my feet. I was so happy. I pushed the send button, and for like one joyous moment, I was like, yes, I have conquered uh, my friends. I have conquered my friends. No, wait. Uh, yeah. I tell you what, the apology to the group was not anywhere as fun as the initial email. Not as fun. Conflict is really easy. Reconciliation is really hard. There's been several surveys on conflict in the workplace, and they found that managers spend about 25% in the average workplace, 25% of their time resolving conflict among coworkers. And in some fields... Uh, municipalities and uh, hospital administrations and, and, and uh, you know, certain organizations, that can be up to 50% of the time. That means that people have jobs to keep people from fighting at their job. That's what that means. So, in light of our own, you know, propensity, our own sort of um, normal course to get into these conflicts, how do we become ambassadors for reconciliation? How do we do it? First thing that God tells us is we have to practice it as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to practice it among ourselves. We have to practice it here at home. Jesus said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We have to, we have to resolve conflict among ourselves, right? And then we, be, and then we, and then we are, our, our, uh, you know, ambassadors uh, for resolution and reconciliation among others. So I'm going to talk just, to, this is going to be super practical stuff today. I'm going to talk about the two ways that we bring reconciliation into any circumstance, from a personal situation to an organizational to a community-wide, but this is how we do it. There are two ways. It's very simple, but we're going to dive into it and, and flesh out what it means. We forgive when we've been wronged, number one, and we seek forgiveness when we have wronged. We forgive when we've been wronged, and we seek forgiveness when we have done wrong. The Bible talks extensively about forgiving. A few things that it says, I'm just going to give you some of the reasons that we forgive. We forgive because we have been forgiven. The Bible says that we forgive because we have been forgiven. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells this incredible story. He tells this story about a king... And this king has a servant. And this servant, Jesus uses this really, uh, you know, over-the-top hyperbolic language to describe what the servant owes him. He says he owes him 10,000 talents. A talent is about a year's wage. 10,000 years of wages, depending on how much you make. That can be millions. That can be billions, right? A guy, a servant, owes the king billions of dollars. 
And the king comes to collect the billions of dollars and says, you know what? You owe me billions of dollars. You need to, you need to pay up. And the guy falls on his knees and says, king, I cannot pay you. Please have mercy on me. Please extend some grace to me. I cannot do it. And the, the, the Bible says that the king had mercy on this guy. He had grace on this guy. And he said, you know what? I actually, I'm going to forgive the debt. I'm going to wipe it off, the, I'm gonna wipe it off the, the chart. You're free to go. You do not owe me any more money. You're good to go. Of course, the servant is ecstatic. He's overjoyed. He walks out. He walks down the street. He's walking along. He sees a guy that owes him about five grand. This guy owes him five grand, another servant. And he goes over to him, and he, the scripture says he grabbed him by the throat. He starts choking him, and he's like, where's my five grand? I want it right now. And the man falls on his knees and says, I'm sorry, I don't have it. Give me time. I'll, I'll come up with it. And the scripture says that this servant said no. And he threw the guy into debtor's prison. Well, of course, when the king found out what happened, <laughs> he comes after the first guy and he says, are you out of your mind? I just forgave you a billion dollars and you're strangling this guy for five grand. And he threw him in prison, locked the door, threw away the key. And then Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. If you don't forgive others, when you have been forgiven such a great debt of your own by your Father in heaven, it's not going to go well for you. You are called to, you're required to forgive because you've been forgiven. Ephesians 4 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He forgave you. So that's the first reason we forgive. The next reason we forgive is because we want our community to flourish. Let me explain what I mean by that. I used to live in Stockton, California. I worked at an awesome restaurant called Round Table Pizza. Anybody ever been to Round Table Pizza? My wife has been to Round Table Pizza. That's the only person. Okay, good. We got, we got three Round Table. And I was a delivery. I was a pizza delivery driver. And what that means is I would get into a... Uh, round table pizza issued Yugo, um, and there was a lit triangle that had suction cups that you would put on the top of the Yugo, and it said round table pizza. It, in Stockton, it may have just as well said, please rob me, I have $200 of petty cash. Um, and, you know, I'd drive around and deliver pizzas, and we all did get robbed eventually at some point while we were working at Roundtable. But there was, there was a guy that I worked with. He was like 16 or 17 years old. Uh, and he and I got to talking, and we got to become friends. And one day he told me, he said, you know, we, we, uh, there was a shootout at my house. There was a drive-by at my house last night. And I'm like, really? And this, is, this kid, is a, he was a Cambodian guy. And um, his family originally, he was from Stockton, but, you know, historically, he was from Cambodia. And... And so I got to talking to him. I said, what, what's going on? And the more we talked, I discovered that he, although he was not in a gang, his father was in a gang, and his grandfather was in a gang. And there are these, these gangs in Stockton that are multi-generational. And none of them can quite go back to figure out what exactly started the fight. Where did the fight begin? Like, what was the original infraction? And nevertheless, generation after generation after generation live in this state of unforgiveness and vengeance and violence. And it goes on and on and on. Because, ultimately, because of unforgiveness. The scripture says, uh, 
strive for peace in Hebrews. Strive for peace with everyone. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And what it's saying is that forgiveness is like a cancer. Forgiveness is, it spreads. It doesn't just stay between two people. It can be infective and it can, it can destroy an entire community. It spreads out. In fact, usually the only person it doesn't hurt is the person against whom you are angry, right? The person you're not forgiving. Somebody said, you know, holding, harboring unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person will die, right? But it, it just spreads. It just goes out. So because we want our community to flourish, we forgive. We live in a state of, of reconciliation and forgiveness. The third reason we forgive is that we're not perfect either. Turn to your neighbor and say, you ain't perfect. Oh, come on. More enthusiasm than that. I thought, man, this was your opportunity, guys. Wow. I thought I was going to have to pull you back on that one. We all have blind spots. We all have things that we don't see about ourselves. And if you think that you, have some, you don't have something that you don't see about yourself, that's your primary blind spot, okay? Because we've all got stuff about ourselves that we don't recognize. When my wife and I go out to dinner with people, we've got this little unspoken rule. We're going to, this may sound a little strange, but after we eat our salads, we kind of check each other out just to see if anybody's got the chives in their teeth, you know, the lettuce going around, the pepper, the big peppercorn in your teeth, right? So you can go, because you can't see it, right? Jesus says in Matthew, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, that's the same judgment that's going to be pronounced against you. And with the measure that you use, that's the measure that's going to be used against you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We forgive because we ain't perfect either. And we don't know necessarily what's going on in our life. And that's why we have Christian community to help each other out. To have a brother or a sister put their arm around you and say, hey, you know, you may want to check this. Or I just noticed this. Can I be of help here? How can I help you? Right? Uh, John Ortberg, who is a pastor out in, in California that I really like, he says, when we enter relationships with the illusion that people are normal, we resist the truth that they are not. He said, we enter an endless attempt to fix them, control them, or pretend that they are what they are not. One of the great marks of maturity is to accept the fact that everybody comes as is. You are going to disappoint people, and they are going to disappoint you. That reality is the reality of life. And whether or not you can develop the Christian maturity to ask forgiveness when you've harmed and to forgive others when they've harmed you, that's going to be the degree to which you are an ambassador of reconciliation. Okay? So that's the first part. The first part is forgiving. And I'm not sure which one is harder, the forgiving part or the seeking forgiveness. But I want to talk just a few minutes about the seeking of forgiveness. The hard part about this is, is that log in the eye part, recognizing that there's a part of whatever conflict you're in that you own. Part of it is you. I mean, there is, it's so rare that two people are in conflict and it's completely one person's fault. It may feel like that. 
You may want to argue that. You may want to believe that yourself. But I, I very rarely see instances where two people are in conflict and it's completely one person's fault. Uh, there's a passage in Numbers, Numbers chapter 5. And it says that when a man or a woman realizes his guilt or her guilt, he or she shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did wrong. I love this concept. What this means is when you have done wrong and you recognize your guilt, not only do you provide restitution for what you have done, but you know what? Throw in a little bonus, right? Because you took something. We had a guy, when I, when I had a job, we had a guy that would steal our sandwiches out of our work refrigerator. Does anybody have a food thief at your job? I'm telling you, we need to put up cameras. There was somebody that would steal the food out of our refrigerator, and the job that I'm talking about, I was the lowest paid guy in that office, so I knew that it wasn't somebody who needed the food, because I needed the food. But I'd open the refrigerator, getting ready to have my lunch, and there's no sandwich in there. And according to the book of Numbers, when that, whoever that person was, and I, I have some ideas about who it might have been, um, what he should have done is brought me a sandwich the next day and then thrown a little blueberry muffin on top. He should have added a fifth to it and just given a little extra. That's what God's calling us. There's a great example in the Bible, and I want to dig into this story at some point. Uh, Jacob and Esau, I've talked about them. I talked about them a few weeks ago. Twin brothers, always in strife, always in conflict. And Jacob had lied to his brother Esau, betrayed him, deceived him, stole the birthright, did all this kind of stuff. Then he left, took off, you know, did all this bad stuff, and then peaced out. Went to work for his uh, uh, father-in-law, made a bunch of money, got married, had a bunch of kids, had a bunch of livestock, got really wealthy. Then on his way home, he realized that he's going to run into his brother again. And his brother's not going to be happy. Esau's not going to be happy. In fact, he got word that Esau was coming towards him with 400 armed men. So, you know, it's time to apologize when your brother's coming towards you with 400 armed men. You know what Jacob did? Listen to how he apologized. He told his servants, to get together little, little droves of his herds of livestock. And he said, I want you to send it out one by one. Okay? Go meet Esau one by one. I'm going to come. I'll be in the way back of the line. Right? So he sends out 200 female goats. And then he sends out 20 male goats. And then he sends out 200 ewes, female sheep. And then he sends out 20 rams. And then he sends out 30 milking camels. And then he sends out their calves. And then he sends out 40 cows. And then he sends out 10 bulls. And then 20 female donkeys. And 10, me- 10, 10 male donkeys. And by the end, he's like, are we good? Right? I've, got, I, I, I've, I've taken a lot from you. But I'm apologizing. And I'm giving a little restitution. And I'm throwing a little extra on top. Can we be good now? And it's really a beautiful, one of the most beautiful images of reconciliation in the Bible. The scripture says that Esau ran towards his brother. Kissed him on the neck held him, and the two of them wept, right? Apology given, apology accepted, restoration of the relationship, reconciliation, and they can move on, right? So God is calling us 
to not only forgive, but to seek forgiveness. So how do we do that in a way that is, that is right? Have you ever had a, an apology go wrong? You like, you go to apologize and it's like, whoops, we just made it worse, right? I said something and, you know, maybe you weren't totally ready to apologize from your heart. You want to say, look, I'm really sorry, but man, if you hadn't, right? Mm -mm, No, no, just hold on to the apology if that's where you're at. Work it out. Talk to somebody. Um, There's a guy named Ken Sandy and he gives, he's a, he used to be um, the head of a group called the Peacemakers, and now he leads a ministry called uh, Relational Wisdom. And he has spent his life helping people resolve conflict in individual lives and in groups and that sort of thing. Uh, and he's come up with what he calls the seven A's of confession. I'm going to walk through these with you. If you have a pen, take note of these um, because this is, this is really, really good stuff. Number one, he says, address everyone involved. So if you, if you do something wrong in front of a group of people, then confess the wrong to the group of people. I had a friend that, uh, we were in a group and he said something about me, um, in front of the group. And, uh, apparently it wasn't that nice. I actually wasn't that offended by it. I know maybe I have a really thick skin, but I, I kind of, kind of went over my head. Um, but later he pulled me aside and he said, Hey, I want to apologize to you because I shouldn't have said that. And I thought, Oh, okay no problem. You know, you're forgiven and that's cool. And then the next time we were with that same group, he pulled me aside again. He said, I want to apologize to you in front of the group because the wrong that I committed was in front of the group and I want to apologize in front of the group. And I was like, okay, maybe that's a little over the top, but you know, but for him, he needed to do that. And and I was, and I actually really respected that because it was like, you know what, that was where the error was made. And so Apologize to everybody involved. Address everyone involved. Number two, this is the one we just mentioned. Avoid if, but, or maybe. Don't let your apology turn into an accusation, right? That's when it goes off the track. Celebrities are awesome at this. They give these pseudo-apologies, these quasi-non-apologies that actually make things worse. And and we, we look at them, but then we do the same thing, right? I'm going to give you a couple examples. Lance Armstrong. Now, he ended up coming clean and, and apologizing for, uh, you know, juicing and all that sort of thing. But one, during one of his apologies, listen to what he said. He says, I went and looked up the definition of cheat. And the definition is to gain an advantage on a rival or foe. And I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as a level playing field. In other words, he's saying, okay, so I, I'm sorry for cheating, but technically... I wasn't actually cheating, right? So basically, I shouldn't be apologizing because I didn't actually do the thing that I should be apologizing for, right? That's not a good apology. Uh, The Toronto mayor, Rob Ford, who has made a lot of apologies, um, multi-year bender, a lot of DUIs, crack, lots of stuff. Um, His apology, he said, I love this, it is unfortunate that the word I did not say has been ascribed to me by the media, but I wish to sincerely apologize. In other words, the thing that you said that I said, I didn't say, but I am really sorry about it, right? I am really sorry that you wrote that about me because you're wrong, right? So it turns into an accusation against the other person. I'll give you one more. Um, Mel Gibson. 
he's given a lot of apologies to. Uh, you know, after driving down through Malibu, slugging tequila and causing a lot of problems, uh, he says, I guess I must have been a little overwrought. And that's what happens. Too much pressure, too much work. I've apologized more than anyone I know, so it's getting old. Um, dude, that's not a great apology, okay? Just saying. It's, it's easy, it's fun to poke fun at these guys, right? But who is not guilty of that, right? Every single one of us has gone in with the intent to apologize, and we end up justifying, and we end up rationalizing, and we end up unapologizing, right? So avoid if, but, maybe, okay? Number three, admit specifically. The worst kind of apology that you can give is in the passive voice. You know, th- things were said. I, I, you know, things were said. Um, things were done. Yeah, things were said, and you said them. And, and what were those things, right? you got to be specific. If you're really going to confess, don't generalize. Don't, don't whitewash it. Get real, okay? Um, <laughs> number four acknowledge the hurt. This is huge, you guys. Acknowledge the fact that the person that you harmed was hurt by what you did or what you said. And this can be particularly hard if the thing that you said or did would not hurt you if it was said or done to you. And early on in, our, in, in my relationship with Rebecca before we were married, we would get into these arguments. And they were intense. They were big arguments. And at the end, I would be done. Like, okay, that argument is done and resolved. And Rebecca would be just emotionally, like, really overwrought. And my thought was, this was dumb. My thought was, why are you so worked up about this? I mean, I just laid out some logical stuff and, you know, we arrived at a conclusion. And that emotion that you're feeling, that's like a little over the top, isn't it? Right? That's not acknowledging the hurt that you caused. Even if that same thing wouldn't have hurt you the same way, acknowledge the hurt that you caused the other. I see some men in here going, yeah, 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 that's the truth. That is the truth. Um, Number five, accept the consequences. Two things that may happen when you apologize. Well, three things. One is the other person may say, you know what, I, I forgive you, and you know what, I was wrong too, right? and then you, you move on. That can happen, but that might not happen. They might, A, not accept your apology, and they might not reciprocate your apology. So if you go in with the expectation that the other person is going to apologize for their part in the conflict, you're going to be disappointed, all right? So accept the consequences no matter what. Don't go in and say, hey, listen, I just want you to know I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about what I said, and um, so I would just ask for you to forgive me. And the other person says, okay, I forgive you. And then you say, okay. You want to you wanna add anything or you got, you want to just go ahead and throw anything else out there? Or, nope, I forgive you. It's like, well, you know what? You should be for asking forgiveness, for, right? Don't get into that. Just accept the consequences. <laughs> Number six. Alter your behavior. And what does that mean? This has nothing to do with, you know, behavior modification to get God's favor or anything like that. What it means is that if you keep having to apologize for the same thing, work, work really hard to not do that thing anymore. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you'll never do it again. In fact, 
Jesus talks about the, being on the other side of that when one of his disciples comes and he says, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven? Like, is that sufficient? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Like, just keep forgiving, right? So on the other end, we keep forgiving. But on the end where we need forgiveness, we should always strive to not do the same thing. Otherwise, the apology just doesn't have the same ring of truth to it, right? If you have no intention of changing the conduct for which you're apologizing, you may not want to apologize yet <laughs> because you're just going to undermine the apology down the road. So alter your behavior. And number seven, ask for forgiveness. Make the ask. Ultimately, just put it out there. No strings attached. Hey, I'm sorry, and I want you to forgive me. And then you need to be able to walk away from that exchange whether or not the person forgives you, whether or not the person reciprocates, whether or not you are satisfied with their response, you just say, I ask for your forgiveness, and I'm just going to leave it there. Because you know what? Sometimes people are not quite ready to forgive, and that's okay too, right? Give them some time. And just be able to pray and move on, ask for God's blessing upon their life, and get on down the road. Amen? Um, There's a great... A quote by a guy named Paul David Tripp. And, and, and he really sort of encapsulates what this is, what this whole reconciliation thing is within the church. He says, the church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. I want to end with this today. The most beautiful picture in the scripture of forgiveness and reconciliation is that moment where Jesus, who has done no wrong, he's committed no sin, he's harmed no one, he's healed, he's loved, he's cared for people, he's spoken the truth, Everything that he's done has been perfect and righteous. And he's taken and he's stripped and he's beaten and he's spit upon. And he's scourged and then he's put upon a cross. And with his arms outstretched in a, in a state of, of shame, in a state of scorn, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's not asking for anything back. He's not trying to get anyone to apologize to him. He's throwing open his arms and then he's putting his arms around you and he's saying, that's okay. I'm going to carry your burden. I'm going to carry your sin. I'm going to carry your weight. I'm going to reconcile your relationship to God the Father through my brokenness, through my sacrifice, through my suffering. And then he calls us to be like that, to be able to open our arms to others and to forgive and to seek forgiveness when we've done wrong and to to be ambassadors of reconciliation in our world, to reach out and heal and mend and restore our world. When Jesus left this earth, he didn't leave and say to us, your role, your purpose in life is to come up to heaven with me. That's not your purpose in life. We do want to be with him, but our purpose in life is to be ambassadors of reconciliation right here, right now on the earth, to be a source of healing and restoration and hope and reconciliation, not only among ourselves, but in our community, in our city, in our country. And we are uniquely positioned to do that 
Nobody else is going to be able to do that. The church of Jesus is the only place where real, true restoration can happen because we've been fully restored and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And we can extend that reconciliation to our neighbors. And it's a beautiful, beautiful task that we're called to. So let's create that. Let's be ambassadors of reconciliation in our families, with our friends, at our jobs, in our communities, and in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we thank you for this very practical, down-to-earth teaching about reconciliation and what it means. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. And we know, Lord, that you restore us and you reconcile us despite ourselves. Not because we're great, not because we've done anything amazing, but because you sought us, you loved us, you reached out to us, and you changed us. God, help us then to walk out of here today and try to be a source of that reconciliation to the people that we meet. Help us not, Lord, to stir up uh, more strife, Lord, but to be a salve, to, to reach out and reconcile uh, relationships that are broken. Help us, God, to learn to seek forgiveness and to forgive. Father, we thank you for this, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to take just a few moments now, and we're going to work.